This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I'm talking with Dr. Nadine Wellams. And Nadine, today you're in Tokyo, is that right? Today I'm in Tokyo. I've been in Tokyo for a few months now because of COVID. And so um, it's a very pleasant experience as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about part of my work today with you and, and with, with the audience. Hi, thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh. I'm based in Hiroshima, Japan. I work as a sustainability-focused consultant for businesses and the travel industry here. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com. And you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Yeah, I'm really happy that you could join and talk about your wonderful book. Um, today we're talking about Nadine's book, uh, Kotan Chronicles, Selected Poems from 1928 to 1943, written by Genzo Sarashina who was a migrant uh, living in the area where the, a lot of the Ainu were living. And it's, it's really fascinating history and heritage and insight into someone who is living in Hokkaido in that area during that time. So I'm so glad you could join us and share some of your insights, Nadine. Yes, so um, this is actually the story of this book is quite interesting in itself because um, I'm a historian of modern Japan and uh, I did I was doing my PhD actually a few years ago because I joined academia after uh, another career in, in journalism. But I was doing research for that, uh, my thesis, which was on political dissent in early 20th century Japan. And I came across some of these um, magazines, poet, poetry magazines, that were really roughly made, you know, things that are put together by a group of people who are very keen and uh, interested in what they're doing and want to express a message, but of course they don't have the means uh, to to make something very, you know, uh, gorgeous and certainly not commercially viable, but they had a, a following. Anyway, um, Genzo Sarashina, so Sarashina Genzo, um, was one of these political dissenters the, in the 1920s and 30s. And he, he was part of the so-called anarchists in the sense that they were against uh, government authority, but not necessarily violent. It was more of a, a worldview, a way of life and a worldview. And he was there in Hokkaido, a second generation migrant from the, the mainland. Um, and as you say, living with uh, or in prox proximity with Ainu uh, communities. So I was doing this research and I came across uh, a little book of poetry called um, Hokui Gojudo, 50th uh, degree north latitude. Um, so that was the, it's a series of um, poetry magazines. And you found, I mean, it's, it's like a, a gem really, because you found you find these uh, poems that talk about the Ainu, that um, talk about, of course, the natural landscape of Hokkaido, 
also uh, a lot above poverty because, of course, we're talking about the 1920s, 1930s, uh, especially harsh in the countryside. The situation was especially harsh for farmers and people like him. Who, he was a farmer, a migrant, a farmer, um, and, of course, for the Ainu. So there's this... Um, a combination of themes that are thought very interesting, you know, beautiful natural landscape, the ethnic Ainu who are being given a voice or are lending their voice to, to the poetry, and also uh, Sarashina himself, who was uh, very idealistic, you know, in his uh, worldview, but also struggling financially, I mean, materially, in order to, to make a living. So it, it's a very interesting combination. Yeah, definitely. I, I was so interested by so many parts of the book, um, I, especially as we're talking about sustainability. Um, it seems like Sarashina-san really learned how the Ainu respected nature in their life and their culture and, and how that was very frustrating for them under kind of the restrictions of Japanese rule. And he especially saw that when he was a substitute teacher of children mm -hmm. and learned a lot about Ainu culture and heritage and community from what he learned while teaching the children. And he was also frustrated from the other side in the textbooks and the kind of uh, forceful changes from the government structure on the Ainu and restrictions on how they were able to live and continue their culture or lack of ability to continue their culture, perhaps. That was really fascinating. Well, the, the history of the Ainu um, in Hokkaido, well, it's, you know, it, officially the Ainu became part of uh, Hokkaido uh, as Japan, part of Japan in 1869. Uh, but before that, there had been some trade with uh, the Japanese, so that there had been communication. But, but in 1869, Japan declared that uh, Hokkaido was part of their national land. Uh, and then a process of assimilation with uh, of the Ainu started not always very straightforward uh, and of course not necessarily beneficial to the Ainu although I, I have to insist that you know it's not black and white and, and of course some Ainu made the most of the situation but the the reality is that in terms of as you say, sustainability and life uh, among the community that value the natural world, uh, you know, as a primary concern, this has kind of disappeared like it disappears in many uh, modernizing societies. And it, it created some frustration and some harm and some, some pain, I think, among these Ainu communities whose world suddenly was changed uh, against their, I mean, not... For their, of their own volition. So um, Sadashina Genzo had a, a wonderful experience, I mean, wonderful for those of us who read about that experience later on. And it is this time he spent uh, teaching in a children's school, a, a shogaku, so a primary school uh, in uh, Hokkaido near Kushiro. 
uh, in the 1930s, early 1930s. And at the time, I mean, from uh, 1899 onwards, the uh, education between Japanese children, there was a segregation between Japanese children and Ainu children. So they were originally not allowed to go to the same schools and the, they had a different curriculum and the Ainu children were encouraged or, or certainly discouraged to speak Ainu language among, amongst, uh, with, with others and at school. So that is the process of assimilation. Now, by the time uh, Sarashina started teaching, there was it has been a bit relaxed and there was a mix between Ainu children and Ainu uh, and uh, Japanese children uh, in these schools. But I think yes, this experience was so wonderful because you can feel uh, and understand through these poems that he really communicated with these children and that the children taught him as much as he was teaching them. Uh, and there was this, you know, again, always in the background of poetry, uh, poverty. It's poetry and poverty, really, because life was difficult uh, for many of these uh, families. Uh, and you could see, talking about sustain sustainability, how, how much they did with what they had and did the mo made the most of, um, you know, the little resources they could get. And one of the tragedies, perhaps, of these changes that took place in within Ainu communities is that the Japanese government at the time decided that fishing, uh, according to the old tradition and of fishing, was no longer allowed. So salmon fishing, for example, was no longer allowed uh, as it had been in the past. And of course, um, this is very major if you live out of, if you live off uh, hunting and fishing, if you're not allowed to fish anymore the way you you used to, uh, I mean there were restrictions. They were allowed at certain time in certain places, but uh, certainly not like before. Uh, and you see in these poems some hints of that. You see, there's one point that says, you know, the the cats, the birds circle around because they see all these uh, salmon coming back from having spawned and uh, nobody can can fish them. I mean, they're just uh, there for, for the, the birds. So, so there are little hints like that. It's, it's really interesting, I think. It is really interesting. And let's talk a little bit about some of the language used. For example, uh, in the title, Kotan, Kotan would mean village, right, in the Ainu language. And Ainu, I, I was so interested to read this in your book, that Ainu just means human. So the Ainu Moshu, is Moshir. it? Moshir. Moshir means yeah. human land. Uh, it was often translated as uh, the Ainu's area, but it actually just means the land of people. And mm. in in contrast to the land of the gods, the Kamui Moshir. And I thought that was so fascinating. And so much of the stories reflect how the Ainu thought about their world and living as many indigenous people do around the world, mm -hmm. living mm -hmm. in balance with nature and animals and, mm -hmm. you know, and then being forced to change what they had learned from ancestors and that frustration 
was reflected. It's really, really interesting insight that he had. And of course, he also had his own bias as a, a Japanese, right? And he would see the some of the elders in the Ainu drinking shochu and kind of giving up on mm-hmm. on trying to fight against the rules and and so i think um i saw someone write about your book that it's it's very sympathetic but it's it's not like a romantic view of the ainu like he he respected them he was sympathetic he was empathetic but not sentimental and i i thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting contrast well uh, yes uh, well i'm very glad that you point that out because in fact it is true that the you know the change that goes through these com- that uh, to which these communities are forced to um, is tragic. I mean, change in itself is very often difficult to go through, and uh, this um, relationship that indigenous communities have to the natural world, which is you know quite obvious in a way, but in each case it has a specificity, and the the Ainu. Uh, traditions are actually very interesting and and lovely and uh, inspiring, very inspiring. Um, So this is, as I say, a tragedy, but you cannot just see the tragedy in this because, um, you know, modernization is a factor for the past well, in the case of Japan, almost 200 years, but, uh, you know, even more in, in other parts of the world. And, you know, this happens everywhere. But I think that um, the role of someone like Sarashina was to to document through his poetry uh, the, what these changes were, we know the meaning, the significance of these changes for the, the Ainu. And you have these poems where one old Ainu says, you know, it used to be that we could trust uh, everything and that we, we would go bare feet uh, into the snow, but uh, now it's no longer the same because the shamo, and the shamo is the pejorative expression used for the Japanese. Um, I was going to say invaders, but it is not the word occupiers or the Japanese migrants, really, um, who were not always kind to the the indigenous people there. Uh, and so they said the Shamo have come and, and now it's all a, a land of, of lies and, uh, you know, frustrations. But uh, so Sarashina, as you say, was ambivalent because, you know, the Japanese who ma- migrate, emigrate to uh, Hokkaido in the late 19th century, mid-late 19th century and early um, 20th century, for them, um, it was an opportunity. So Hokkaido was the land of promises, and you had quite many uh, samurai, for example, who had lost their status at the time of the Meiji Restoration, who moved to Hokkaido. Uh, a bit later on, you had people who'd lost everything on the, the mainland and thought, well, we're we going to make a new start in Hokkaido. So Hokkaido, for them, was a land of opportunity. Um, but someone like um, Sarashina was, I think, deep down empathetic, and he understood that you know one one's opportunity didn't go without someone else's 
loss or, uh, you know, imposition. So he, he was very aware of that. But he was also aware that modernity, well, at least he was expressing the fact that modernity was unstoppable, that you, you couldn't go against this. And therefore, uh, he looked at the Aino communities with sympathy, but also he thought, you know, you've got to, to resist, you've got to do your own uh, your own thing, or you've got to to fight as a you know a dissenter would fight at the time uh, to raise your fist, and and he was a bit uh, disappointed to see that some of them just fell into alcoholism rather than fighting, uh, or that they would um, uh, they would stick to superstitions rather than uh, try to catch up with uh, some some different ways of, of living so so it's so interesting there's so many interesting facets and I'm I'm really curious how you were able to choose uh, which poems to feature in the book because he was prolific he wrote a lot more poems than would appear in this book um, you had a great team it sounds like at Isobar press who were who yes. were helping you get the right the right tone and everything, and you also made some choices about how to translate and how to show the censorship. Can you talk about the censorship a little bit? Yes. Well, first about uh, Isabel Press. Uh, uh, again, I'm glad you mentioned this because uh, the editor, publisher of Isabel Press is Paul Rossiter, who is himself a poet. And it's a, a wonderful little publishing house that produces poetry by poets who are uh, interested in Japan, relate to Japan, live in Japan, are Japanese. So it's a, it's the, you know, the link between Japan and poetry. Um, and so it's a wonderful collection. And Paul Rossiter was very helpful, helping me, you know, shaping these poems into English. That's the first thing, because the English is not my native language, even though I love poetry. But, you know, it was very good to have someone who was actually a poet uh, helping with this. Um, about the language, yes, there is censorship involved, because this was in the 1930s, when uh, any mention of um, the emperor, for example, uh, any criticism of the emperor, any criticism of private property, was uh, frowned upon and not on, was censored by the government or self-censored because the, the poets or the, the writers knew that they would be censored if they didn't self-censor themselves. Um, so this was a time where all uh, leftist ideologies like communism, anarchism and socialism were heavily repressed by the government. So authors like Sarashina were quite careful. Um, they would put instead of some words that could be offensive, they would put some uh, little circles, the, the fuseji, in order to show, I mean, to, to hide the words. So, so for some, in some cases, instead of the word emperor, you would have a a little circle uh, oppression or, um, you know, any, as I say, any criticism of private property was uh, censored. So, um, so we did, when we did the translations and, you know, put it into English, they, you've got to make a choice. Either you, you pretend it's not there or you, 
you replace by what you think could have been there. Sometimes it's obvious, but it's not always entirely obvious. I mean, there's a huge uh, context. I mean, uh, you know, context that you have to to be aware of, and, and you know, you could miss the mark. Or what we did, we just put it into brackets. We put the word censored, uh, which I, I think works in this case because it actually makes it quite powerful because you you realize that. The writer, uh, even though he's sympathetic, even though he uh, has his own opinions, is not allowed to express them. And this is clearly, um, you know, expressed, shown by these brackets and censored. Uh, So that was one of the choices we had to make. Uh, Another choice we had to make was about the the use of onomatopoeia, which is very common. you know, Japanese is not the only language, of course, that uses onomatopoeia. But it is true that uh, it is uh, many poets uh, in Japan use them a lot, and there are quite a, uh, um, a huge number of them available in the Japanese language. And Sarashina was keen to to use them. Also, when you talk about the natural world, uh, of many of these poems are about the natural world. You want to, I mean, this is a, a wonderful way of expressing these uh, phenomena of the natural world. And so we, we just wondered how to translate that too. And because it is a little bit distinct, distinctive in the case of Sarashina and that kind of poetry, we decided to leave the words in Japanese and gloss it immediately after with the um, equivalent meaning in English. So it somehow it does disrupt a little bit the the flow of the poem. But again, I, I thought that it's a really nice way of uh, showing to someone who's not uh, fluent in Japanese the beauty of the language, because of, you've got these frogs doing koro koro. Um, you know, it's a few little examples like that that you really want to, to show. Um. For example, uh, maybe for the censorship part, probably the most famous example is from Isn't It So? And so in Isn't It So, um, he's talking about uh, you people descend from those long ago resisted the censored. But all you do is cry yourselves to sleep. The natives censored law is poison gas. And you wonder what the point of clenching your fist is, your balls cut off by the drinking shochu, your Minoko daughters stolen. So there are some really powerful parts of the poem which you keep that word censored in. And I, I think when I was reading it, it, it seems even more powerful then that, mm-hmm. that you realize not only this is a very honest reflection of how the locals were feeling in his poetry, but that any words or reference to officialdom or government was was censored. And it's amazing, actually, that they allowed it, even even with the censored, that they allowed it to be printed. Well, they allowed it up to a point, and then when uh, through the the thirties, uh, repression censorship became more and more. Um, you know, strict, stricter, and and then it uh, in the end, it not, nothing was allowed. I mean, d- during the war, nothing was allowed anymore. Um, but in that particular poem, 
you know, there are so many um, aspects of Ainu history that come into that poem. For example, he says, uh, you who have long resisted, uh, it's course, is the emperor. That is, uh, because the Ainu were uh, originally living in the mainland and they were pushed by the, the Yamato people, the Japanese uh, people up north and, you know, ended up living mostly in the northern part. Um, and, and so... But they were, it, it didn't happen just uh, smoothly, of course. They had some, um, some battles and some, uh, some conflict uh, in the past uh, for, for several centuries until, uh, you know, in the, the late 18th century, finally, it, it just uh, settled down somehow. And then, and then in, uh, in 1869, there was the, the actual... Uh, incorporation of Hokkaido into Japan. So that that part, you know, is the emperor. And then it mentions this law. This is a law of uh, 1899, which is called um, the former natives protection law. So in this case, I think there's a little bit of a pun on protection so that the Japanese government has uh, established this um, system to allow the uh, Ainu to receive land in exchange of actually cultivating the land. And of course, in all process of expansion and uh, settler colonization and colonization, you know, you want to um, cultivate the land because that's the way to to occupy it. It's the best way to occupy it, basically. So they were trying to motivate the local Ainu to cultivate land in exchange for owning the land, but there were, of course, several conditions, and uh, and as in all these processes, doesn't always go so smoothly and so fairly, and that was one of the problems. So the, the Ainu were not necessarily happy with that law, um, <clears throat> even though the intention was to protect them, you know, and you, you've got to put some uh, quotation marks here. Uh, so that the Ainu, for example, were complaining that they would receive the worst land compared to what the Japanese uh, would receive. So because this uh, cultivation system applied also to Japanese, but the, the Ainu, you know, would sometimes receive much worse land than the the Japanese themselves. So that was one of the complaints. And then you mentioned also the, the sake, the shochu, the fact that they instead of fighting back, uh, at least that's what Sarashina's view is, they would uh, fall into drinking shochu and, and lose all their fighting spirit, um, you know. But if you compare the uh, conquest or the uh, incorporation of Hokkaido to, to the conquest of the Midwest, in the United States, the conquest of the West in the United States. Um, you know, there are similarities, but the, there's one big difference, of course. This was very peaceful comparatively in Japan. There were hardly any, uh, if any, armed conflicts at that time anymore. So the, the Ainu communities basically accepted more or less the, you know, the situation, uh, which I don't think it was the case in, in America. Um, earlier, of course, but yeah, I, I found that really interesting. And uh, he was obviously very sympathetic, and he ended up losing his teaching job. 
um, because he kind of rebelled against the the curriculum that was mm. forced on, even though the Ainu children were segregated into different schools, um, they were forced to relearn their history through a Japanese government uh, filter, mm. right? So yes, they yes. were being, the children were being told different stories than their ancestors had told them. And they would ask Sarashina-san, is this true about my ancestors? And, and he was very conflicted about forcing that kind of changed history version on his students. And he ended up being dismissed from the school for that rebellion. Is that right? So interesting. That, yes, that's right. And there's the, this particular poem, where, which you're referring to, where a little girl uh, is reading the government-approved textbook, and it says that the, the Ainu, well, it implies that the Ainu were the emishi, were the... Uh, basically the the tribe um, that had to be pushed away that, that they were not the uh, the original occupants that they were outsiders uh, and that had to be pushed out uh, and so that of course that conflicts with what what they thought of the land the the Ainu Moshi was the you know the land of the people that belonged to them right from from the start so um and uh, sarashina was very critical of the educational policies of the japanese government and as you say he ended up being uh, dismissed from his job because he had opposed and uh, openly basically critique critique this um this view of the government and the way the the ainu children were taught the, this history um they're very which, which wasn't easy because he, he himself was struggling to make a living. And uh, mm -hmm. in the book, he writes about uh, talking with his mother and he was telling his mother, don't cry for me. Like, I'm, I'm okay. I feel okay with my mm -hmm. decision to kind of rebel against them. And in your introduction in the book, you write about, um, to him, I knew civilization, civilization was other but never inferior. And mm. so he he was proud of kind of standing up for his principles in that way, maybe? Yes, this idea of, uh, you know, having a scale of civilization, some are more are superior than others, that, that was very much into the Japanese mindset uh, at the time of the Meiji Restoration and, you know, the, the everything that came with it uh, and you know it's a it's a long story of course but um, for the the Japanese at the time to have the Ainu as a so-called backward um, you know civilization it was it had their own self-perception uh, and how they would be able to to catch up with the so-called advanced uh, civilizations of the West. And of course, we've changed completely our views on this today, finally, and uh, happily. But um, 
it is true that in the case of Sarashina and many people who he was acquainted with, you know, his friends and, and activists, there was much less of a sense of the Ainu having a, you know, living in a backward time. And much less because I say that it's never entirely avoidable, actually. You know, that Sarashina was also a Japanese as his mindset slowly and particularly when the, the war years came closer, uh, he changed his, you know, his views a little bit. I think he was partly forced to do it because uh, he, his wife had died. Uh, he had two little girls. He had to feed them. So he, he tended to take, to support, um, not very openly, but sometimes, you know, writing supportive poems, uh, supportive of the, the war effort, for example. Um, I, I think somehow he forced, felt, uh, he felt forced to do it. But on the other hand, um, yes, it, it was very difficult to... To remain completely neutral and, and an outsider, and, and he did fall into the category of intellectuals who slowly turned a little bit their they could, we say, and um, supported the Japanese government. After the war, he actually had a, a long career as an ethnographer, uh, historian of Ainu traditions. And he stayed very close to many Ainu communities, but some other part of the, some other Ainu were quite resentful of his actions because they thought that he had used their, um, you know, that the Ainu concept almost to to advance his own career. But that's you know that's another story really, and it has to do with identity politics and all these things that are very difficult to understand sometimes and to grasp certainly yeah um i just want to touch on this other part from your introduction where you you talk about uh chidi yukie who was yes. was also writing at that time she was a celebrated native ainu who transcribed traditional tales into japanese and she expressed astonishment mingled with anger about the vocabulary of disappearance attached to her people. Um, so mm -hmm. there were other writers at that time who maybe were kind of pushing back against the idea that Ainu mm -hmm. culture is, is no good and it's disappearing. And she wanted to, maybe other people as well, wanted to perpetuate and keep alive the Ainu culture and traditions. And even now in 2020, 2021, we mm. see the struggle kind of continuing even now. So it's still a relevant issue, right? It is a rele still a relevant issue. And um, Chiri Yukie, or Yukie Chiri, was a very interesting um, young woman who died very young, actually, because she transcribed uh, the, the Ainu and then translated into Japanese. Because there's one thing we have to keep in mind that the Ainu have no written language. So everything has always been transmitted through oral traditions, uh, which, of course, is a, is a completely different concept again. And these um, traditions, you know, were very often transmitted through what they call yuka or kamui yuka, which were songs that tell, told stories, either uh, epics 
or um, you know the songs of the gods and um, what uh, Chidi Yukie did is transcribe and then translate into Japanese some of these uh, kamui yuka which uh, are, are lovely you know and the, these uh, kamui yuka in fact are those um, when God the gods uh, talk in the first person and and explain what they see and, and how you know uh, and the gods in in the uh, in the Ainu world, of course, are all these natural phenomena and even uh, house implements that facilitate life of the the humans. Uh, and so there's a kind of constant communication you can you see between the world of the gods and the world of the the humans. And the the gods facilitate the life of the humans, and in return, the humans humans. Um, pray and uh, thank the gods. So there are quite some rituals and uh, ceremonies in order to to make this interaction always in process, if you wish. So um, so yes, the these stories, these Ainu stories, there are quite a few now that have been transcribed, uh, recorded even, translated, and that who that are available. Uh, in Japanese, uh, there are a few translated into English, uh, and it's lovely, these lovely stories. Uh, but they do, they do belong to a dying tradition, if you wish, which, which is sad. But it's, uh, I, I think, that instead of seeing it as a, a disappearing race or a disappearing tribe, it, it's uh, more important to look at it as a some intermingling of cultures and the Ainu and the Japanese culture, Ainu and Japanese culture somehow have met and some new things are coming out of this and you can never really preserve or conserve a uh, culture, you know, without any influences from the outside. I, I think it's these days it's, it's almost impossible. So um, it's uh, the Ainu traditions are very rich uh, and uh, and I think we can still enjoy understanding them and see how they have come in contact with the, the outside world in a very meaningful way, actually. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I had a chance to talk to a filmmaker, uh, Chuck Bisher, mm -hmm. in the series so far, and he did a documentary about a young Ainu woman um, who was revisiting her heritage and history and uh, learning these songs like you're talking mm -hmm. about and learning how to sing it and uh, then traveling to America and visiting indigenous culture um, groups in America who had similar stories and similar heritage and similar traditions which were kind mm -hmm. of uh, restricted by the government. And that was a really interesting talk. And yeah, it, it and then having that background and knowing that that conflict to embrace your heritage for the Ainu people is still definitely happening. It's still a struggle. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about in your introduction, you say to Sarashina, this intriguing and powerful symbolism also pointed to the plight of a people who found it difficult to confront the modern world because of deeply held beliefs. And mm. he saw their deep cultural heritage 
as one of the reasons they were having so much difficulty kind of becoming modern Japanese yes. people, right? Yes. So they had the, the ceremonies and the one of the famous or the most well well known one is the Iomande is the sacrifice of a bear cub. Uh, and you know, as I said before, it is a ceremony to thank the gods for having facilitated life uh, on earth for the, the humans. Uh, so they, the gods come to, to the land of the humans in the shape of bears, so the bears can be, the skin can be used for clothing and the meat can be eaten and so forth. And so the, there's one ceremony called Iomande when the, the Ainu return the bear to the land of the gods, but uh, that means uh, a very elaborated ceremony with the bear cub and, and, and so forth. And uh, what Sarashi and I thought that, of course, these ceremonies are interesting in themselves, so what they tell us about the Ainu world and their conceptions and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, um, to keep belief, believing in the 20th century, because that's when he, you know, he lived and, and documented these things, keep believing in the, the need to, to do this uh, was perhaps something that was a, a break to um, integration into the modern world. And um, he, he was, as I say, ambivalent about those, um, those traditions and, and beliefs. And super, he called them superstitions. So superstitions has always a little bit of a negative um, meaning to it, I think. But he was, it also seemed like he was very intrigued by their way of thinking because of it, right? Like in, in your book, you translated the poem Bear Story. And uh, you, it's about an old man talking about a story of a bear stealing a calf and having a very surprise uh, ending because when he followed the bear who he assumed had killed the cow, um, he noticed mm. the bear was actually nurturing and cuddling the cow. And he, mm. he was really surprised. But then he said, now I see, kind of, I understand what the bear was thinking. And the bear walked off and the calf followed it. Like, mm. it's, he's just kind of appreciating nature on a different level. And then he says, but I, I can't live with bears, <laughs> mm. you know, in the end, it's, it's just, it's delightful. I love it. Well, yeah, I, I think that these poems, um, by going into the, the Ainu's view, world, uh, world view, sorry, world view, and the way they relate to, to animals and to, to the animal world, I think it makes you reflect a little bit on this uh, conception that is part of modernity, which is, you know, man has to control nature. And um, nature is there to be controlled. And there is some kind of separation between humans and animals that um, is a, a given. And, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, now we we think, of course, we think a little bit dif differently because we kind we tend to return to a, a more flexible conception of the man-nature relationship. 
but uh, but I think that at the time uh, it was certainly on the part of uh, a poet like Sarashina is a, some form of critique of uh, blind modernization and and blind uh, you know destruction of natures and all these traditions that were linked to nature and therefore um, allowed a, a more harmonious connection this you know more harmonious connection between men and nature and yeah I'm talking in in broad terms because of course you it's always a little bit more complicated but I, I think it's these poems were a little bit of a wake-up call uh, in in that sense and the, the world of the animals could not just be dismissed and and put aside I mean there's a, a very sad story well sad um, a representative story of the eradication of wolves in Hokkaido because the um, the Japanese had uh, decided to invest in cattle ranching and uh, therefore the wolves the the, look, the you know the native wolves were very uh, dangerous I mean they they used to to kill the cows and the, the cattle and therefore there was a campaign to eradicate them and they, they did eradicate the, the native wolf of Hokkaido. So um, this was perhaps some critique of that those kind of methods that were so radical and so definite in a way uh, and harmful in the long run. Yeah, I, and I think we, we see that not only in Japan, but quite often all over the world, how the occupiers would try to make changes which seem logical and seem mm -hmm. more efficient, but cr pushing the indigenous people to give up their connection to nature and their connection to the animals and hunting and gathering and, and you know, even practicing their beliefs as mm -hmm. uh, the gods coming down as the animals to provide food for them. Like very different concepts about uh, the balance between humans and animals. I, mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. You also share some folklore. So, for example, on the lake and the story of the old woman and mm. and her tears. And, you know, so in the book, there's also some delightful stories um, which represent Ainu culture in, in terms of passing on these stories. And, and the story represents how nature uh, mm. creates rain or or mist in a in a certain area that they live and I, I just thought it was so beautiful it's like traveling to Hokkaido as well well as you probably know there are beautiful uh, landscapes in Hokkaido I think one of the stories referred to this uh, Lake Matsu is it uh, which is uh, a a crater, basically a very deep crater, uh, and there's a tiny little island in the middle. Uh, you can't really access it because the, you know, the access is so abrupt. Uh, and then there's this light, tiny island in the middle, and the the Ainu have given it some meaning. You know, it's always spiritual meaning, which is uh, what makes a community like that live, uh, and basically in time so it's uh, yeah it's a, some of these stories are lovely indeed it's beautiful um 
and when I visited, like you said, when I visited Hokkaido years ago, and my children loved snowboarding, and we were in this beautiful area, and I remember waking up really early in the morning to go and watch the sunrise, and I had my camera, and I was taking photos, and I just, in my periphery, I thought somebody else was standing next to me taking photos, and I look over, and it was a Hokkaido fox that was standing... <sighs> standing on the hill next to me and he's looking at the sunrise next to me mm -hmm. taking in the sunrise and wow that was so powerful you know to just be in such mm -hmm. a natural place i loved it yeah they are they are beautiful places out there i mean almost everywhere but uh, um, if you can connect these places to the people who've lived there for a very long time and, and their stories i think it makes it sometimes even more meaningful or at least enjoyable yes and in was it 2016 that you had a trip to Hokkaido to go and research more um, before writing the book is that right yes I went there in 2016 and you know what I uh, I like to do when I, I read poetry um, is to really go on the steps of the poet I think it makes a huge difference. And of course, this happened 30, uh, 100 years ago, so things have changed. But I was taken to, you know, to the forest and uh, I traveled in the mountains and went to the, the little village where he he lived. Uh, so some, some Ainu village that had been uh, preserved. And then I also met his um, his son, uh, and we had a conversation and it, it really, you know, it's, it's a way of contextualizing, but I think it's a way of visualizing what he was seeing or what is left at what he was seeing. Uh, it makes a, a big difference, I think, when you write a, a book or where you translate uh, poems like that. And it, it was very helpful uh, and quite interesting. I've done a, something similar with... Um, Miyazawa Kenji, um, following his steps of travel in uh, Tohoku. I mean, much less in, in depth. And I'm not a, a translator of uh, Miyazawa Kenji, but uh, it, it was also it's these poets did wonderful journeys. I mean, we can we can go back to Basho, you know, and the journeys they they did traveling by foot very often. Um, through the countryside and through the villages and and then they they write the impressions and they they re resurrect basically the the mists and the the scent and the atmosphere and the the encounters too because it is always very often it is very often a story of encounters with the different people and different situations yeah so I think you talk about this uh, in the interview you did with Japan Times years ago when the book came out. Um, you were talking about going to the museums and maybe on that visit, uh, you not only visited the areas, but you were also able to see more information in different museums. Was that in Hokkaido? Well, there is a... Um... In Hokkaido, um, it's near Abashiri. It's called the Museum of Northern Peoples, Northern Peoples, uh, which I, I highly recommend to anyone who ever has a chance to go up there. Uh, and it's uh, it's about the cultures of different indigenous tribes who lived in the north. So that includes the Ainu, 
but uh, I think there are perhaps seven or eight other uh, indigenous peoples living in the Kamchatka, Kamchatka Peninsula, um, the in the Inuit, you know, and they're comparing the way they they make things, how they what they eat, how they relate to to the environment, and it's very well done, and it's really enlightening to see how how much of a common ground there is between these different peoples, but also differences and, and specificities, you know, the pattern, the patterns on the clothing. And it's a, it's a wonderful museum, really. Uh, I, I loved it. And again, it makes you understand how so much of a, a special world uh, it was in the north. And because all these people, of course, had to, to deal with the snow. You know the snow and the cold, uh, which is always a huge part of the of daily life, and and how they did that. So that that's really interesting. And you know, there's quite a lot of quite a bit of literature about indigenous peoples in the north. And uh, and one thing um, we also have to understand is that now we talked about the Ainu and we talk about the Nivsks and we talk about you know other different uh, indigenous peoples as if they were separate entities. But in fact, of course, they had a lot of exchanges between the, uh, each other, uh, including intermarriages. So it's it's much more of a fluid situation, you know, interaction between people uh, existed. And it's a fluid um, phenomena, phenomenon um, of indigeneity rather than a, a set and solid, you know, um, separate, the, the separate little worlds like that, and I think that's important to, to understand too. Yeah, wonderful. Um, just a shout out to people watching from Facebook and YouTube and Twitch. Thank you so much, and feel free to write your questions and comments. We have about seven more minutes, so we'll try to fit them in if you write anything. Um, Nadine, can you tell us if you have a favorite poem? or a favorite part of the book that you you kind of stayed with you uh, all these years later? Well, um, you know, there, there are parts that I really like. For one thing, this, uh, the poets are put into some kind of uh, chronological order. So the ones at, this, at the end of the book are those he wrote, Sarashna wrote a bit later, and he's changed his mind already a little bit about what to think about all of these um, changes taking place. And uh, so the ones at the, the end of the book are more abstract in talk, talking about Ainu stories. The one at the beginning of the book um, really almost impersonate uh, Ainu uh, in their daily life. And so, so I, I like those particularly. I, I like one poem when he talks about being a teacher with little children and um, it's summer and all the children say, oh, can we go out and, and have a swim after that? And he says, yes, wait, wait, wait. And then finally they all go out and they rush to the... Um, to the lake and they all take off their clothes and jump into the water and, and he, he ends the poem saying and they all were standing there you know naked to uh, in the air uh, and they said 
sensei sensei come in and jumping with us and i thought it was such a a wonderful um you know feeling of summer and uh, being together in the water there's another poem i really like but that's also because i'm i'm a historian and i'm interested in these things that document uh, other um aspects of uh, history and there's one about the Russo-Japanese War, actually. One Ainu participated, uh, you know, he took a Japanese name and, and participated in the war as a soldier. And what he reports is not bravery, is not heroism, it's more um, how prisoners were, you know, dispatched to the other world because it was too difficult to you know, to keep them uh, as prisoners. Uh, it was about, um, as I say, lack of bravery rather than, than the other way around. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's always interesting to, to, to see it that way. Um, but it's not as enjoyable, I'd say. But, but still very relevant and very mm. important that you've documented it um, in English. Now, you, you talk about English is not your native language. Are you native French speaker? Native French speaker, yes. And have, you, I, um, have you thought about translating this into French, this book? Well, I, w I would like to actually um, write more in French that and, and other things. Uh, you know, life someone sometimes takes you into the non-chosen path or the, you know, by chance, I, I, I joined um, British, uh, univer British University and uh, so did my PhD and uh, this and that. And so that's why I ended up writing this in English. But you're right. Uh, I think it's worth, you know, translating into as many languages in, as possible, actually. Because um, it's a world, as I said earlier, it's a document on the world at the time, Hokkaido, 1930s, this interaction between Japanese and Ainu in an incredibly changing environment and wonderful, beautiful landscape, actually. And this is, um, you know, it's an in interesting document. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And it's, it's such an important document in history, but also in uh, keeping these Ainu stories and traditions and experiences with mm -hmm. the Ainu from this time, keeping it alive in modern history for modern mm. people to be able to read mm. and experience and relate to. I grew up in Hawaii and there's so many <gasps> similarities between mm -hmm. the indigenous Hawaiian people and what they were forced to change when, mm -hmm. you know, well-meaning occupiers came in and told them don't farm like this anymore don't hunt and gather you know you have to change your way of living so so many parallels mm -hmm. and i'm sure anyone living anywhere in the world uh where there is indigenous cultures there there are very interesting connections in your mm -hmm. book here so it's it's a wonderful book thank you so much for writing it well, thank you for the invitation to uh, talking about it. I've, I've been doing other work um, recently, so I, it was a little bit at the back of my mind. But going back to it today, it's actually uh, it's really lovely. Thank you. It's wonderful.
That's great. We, we have just a couple more minutes. Um, when when you have a chance, do you teach some of the things from the book to your students in the UK? Yes, I do teach. Um, the you know students in the UK. I mean, my students are not that interested in poetry, and I, I think that you know students these days don't find poetry that uh, exciting unless they're really keen uh, right from the start. So it's sometimes a little bit difficult to transmit the, you know, the value of this poetry. Um, but I do, I mean, I'm a firm believer actually in the, the value of poetry as, a, as document, as inspiration, uh, and the, just the beauty of it. Uh, and I, I think that it should be part, actually, of the curriculum. Uh, not only that poetry, but there are so many poems. And uh, just if you want to teach Japanese history, there are so many uh, poets that have expressed, you know, the mindset of their times uh, and the, the frustrations, the angst, uh, the beauty uh, in, in such um, interesting ways that uh, I'm, I'm very keen to, to do it. So I do a little bit of it, but I, I just can't overload my students with that kind of uh, material, sadly. Well, I hope that you'll join us again someday and uh, give us more insights into the other work that you're doing as a historian of Japanese culture. This is so important, not only about poetry, not only about the Ainu's history, but so many different ways to talk about shared experience in Japan is so connected to sustainability and mm. how we should move forward and make better choices in terms of protecting people, protecting the planet, and having a strong economy is really important to have mm -hmm. that balance. Thank you so much. Um, it was a real pleasure and I, I really hope we can um, connect again uh, in the future. Thank you so much, JJ. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you everybody for joining. Uh, Sarah said she just tuned in now, looking forward to watching it. Yeah, please do the replay. Uh, it will be available on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. So watch it anytime and make sure that you write your questions and comments and we'll try to reply there as well. I know Nadine is also on Facebook. Maybe if there's interesting questions, you can also reply there. Thank you so much, Nadine. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.